This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Saver, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And today we have an episode for you about sugar sculpture. Indeed. And it is an interesting one. <laughs> oh, it's weird. It's weird. Rich yeah. people, what are you what are you up to? What what were you up to in the past? <laughs> if we ever get that podcaster money, <laughs> maybe we'll know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. I yeah. Um yeah, this one. Okay, so 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 this one I was thinking about because I was looking into various kinds of frosting. Mm. And this is a thing that I do occasionally and decide that like it's not it's like too scattered or like weird. And then I was like, well, what about like a fondant situation? And mm. I was like, well, that's still like the I, I, I haven't been able to find a really good source about like the modern history of any of these things. But sugar sculpture. <laughs> oh, yes, there is historical information about that. So there is. I it's one of the things we encounter on these that I adore is when I'm like, I don't think I've ever heard of this. Oh, here are books <laughs> researching it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I feel like I've seen like chocolate sculptures. Okay. I've we've obviously, obviously hmm. talked about gingerbread houses. And things like that. I don't know if I've ever seen a sugar sculpture in person. Uh, maybe, um, maybe the type that looks sort of like blown glass. Um, mm. Maybe on one of those cruises or on one of your <laughs> Vegas trips or something like yeah. that. Um, uh, so certainly, I've seen some some of those types on like pastry competition shows. Uh, there's always that really bone rattling moment where they make the contestants move the piece like like five oh, yeah. feet like five feet from one table to another and it's like oh no it's a horror movie all of a sudden oh yeah. it is it is <laughs> heck mm -hmm. um yeah i think it's just like i'm sure i've encountered it i'm sure i've seen it but i didn't know it was this whole thing okay i guess <laughs> <laughs> i to be fair i didn't realize it was this much of a historical thing until we started doing this reading so mm. Mm -hmm. well you can see our sugar episode uh -huh. episodes episode two two one. i think it was no it, oh, well there no, you go two. who knows uh, who knew you don't know <laughs> i think there was one on nutrition and one on like the history stuff yeah. okay Got it. Uh, also, edible gold, I would say, is sure. kind of in this category. Yeah. Um, butterfly pea flower, if not just for like the kind of performance, the the coloring yeah. of foods. Marzipan. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That one ties into this really, really close. Yes. Well, I guess this brings <laughs> us to our question. I guess so. <laughs> 
sugar sculptures. What are they? Well, uh, sugar sculptures are works of art made primarily out of sugar or sugar derivatives. Um, There are two basic types, uh, types where you heat the sugar to melt it and then manipulate it as a liquid or like a soft solid as it cools. And then the types where you mix the sugar with a little bit of other stuff to make a sort of dough or paste and then manipulate that and, uh, and dry it out. Uh, Either way, you can dye or paint it, and um, you'll wind up with a hard and probably fragile work of art that's, like, varyingly edible. Um, Like, most of it, technically, you could eat. You might not really (laughs) want to. Uh, It's it's really more decorative. Um, it's, uh, It's choosing to use something edible and sweet and with this, like, deep, complicated history of being something celebratory to make something pretty um and and often not meant to be eaten um but often still as like ephemeral as any other sugary creation um the cup types can be a little bit hazardous to make that's that's fun uh <laughs> you could you could argue like that that everything humans do with food is both a science and an art but Sugar sculpture just really hits on both. Um, it's like a, it's like the hubris of man, but aesthetic. I love it. You know I love that stuff. <laughs> and we're like, why are we doing this? It's dangerous. <laughs> you're, what? You're not gonna eat it. What? <laughs> right. What? <laughs> I mean, and I didn't mean to put any emphasis on the word pretty to mean that that's like a bad thing. Like, it's mm-hmm. nice to make aesthetic things. Like, oh, I, yeah. sure, that's literally lovely. I, cool, you know, but. Right. Oh, what are we doing? <laughs> no one knows, I think. No one knows. I think that's the truth. <laughs> oh, gosh, that is like the deepest truth. Huh. Mm-hmm. Well, that got existential. Um, all right. Uh, there are a number of ways of working with sugar in order to make it sculptable. Because uh, it's just a crystalline solid, you know. Um, so you can make a paste of uh, sugar and water and then uh, something like sticky and pliable, maybe like a plant-based gum or or resin or a gelatin type of thing. Um, and in the right amounts of each, you'll wind up with something like Play-Doh or, or modeling clay that can be sculpted or molded um, using a cast or just your your fingers or other tools. Um, and then when it dries and hardens, it will be It'll be like opaque white to off-white in color um, and something like Neko wafers in texture. Uh, And you can make some really, really detailed pieces with this stuff and color the dough with all kinds of dyes or or paint it after it's molded. Um, And this is sometimes called plate sugar or um, pastelage. Yeah, yeah. But if we're talking about those like those like translucent, shiny, glass-like sugar sculptures, those are made by the other method of of cooking sugar down into a liquid, um, usually with some water, and then manipulating it the way that you would molten glass uh, by pulling, um, spinning, or drizzling, or uh, or blowing it. Okay, so spinning involves throwing off threads of hot sugar that are so thin that they cool in the air and firm up in a sort of nest. Um, Or you can kind of like drizzle or fling them onto a two or three dimensional surface and let them firm up there. Pulling uh, will work tiny air bubbles into the sugar as you stretch a cooling glob of it over and over again in your hands or maybe using a hook. Um, And then you can sculpt that into whatever shape you like. Um, It'll be semi-opaque and very shiny, um, and you can do all kinds of sorts of, like, delicate ribbons and petals this way. Uh, Blowing involves using a small air pump uh, and a a blowpipe or or a straw and just your lungs um, to manipulate a cooling glob of sugar that you've probably already pulled a bit um, using air and your hands and other tools to sculpt it. And this can create hollow shapes. Um, and like really delicate, organic-looking shapes. With the invention of food-safe casting molds that are made with like flexible stuff like uh, like silicone, you can also pour your molten sugar into a mold and then pop it out like a like an ice cube when it when it's hard and dry, in exactly the way that an ice cube is not. Yes. Um, <laughs> 
And uh, and all of these can be further manipulated by applying heat from a blowtorch to soften it, to to like reshape a piece um, or to weld pieces together. Yeah. Mm. Interestingly, these days, a lot of professional grade sugar sculpture is actually done with not sugar. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, follow along with me. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's still edible. Um, it's, it's still a sugar derivative. Okay. So there's this derivative of sugar uh, called isomalt. That's, um, it's not quite like bizarro sugar, but okay. It's, it's less sweet tasting than sugar. It has fewer calories. It doesn't impact your blood sugar levels when you eat it. Like it doesn't cause insulin to, to, to be released in your body. And more relevant to our purposes today, um, it's like a white to clear crystal that can be melted and shaped in the same ways that sugar can. Um, except even better for sculpting. Um, it doesn't glom onto water molecules like sugar does, um, meaning it won't like distort or melt as easily so it will last longer. And furthermore, um, it doesn't caramelize when you cook it, meaning that it doesn't discolor during the heating process. Um, real sugar will, will go a bit yellowish, and if you cook it too long, it'll definitely turn that like caramel golden brown. Um, isomalt is more expensive, but it is like the professional standard for, for any type of sugar sculpture that's made by cooking your, your, your sugar. Um, so yeah, all of those, all of those pretty translucent pieces that look like glass are probably isomalt. (laughs) Isomalt sounds kind of threatening to me. (laughs) I feel like it's kind of close to iso, isopod, and I've seen a lot of horror movies about isopods. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I see you. I see you. (laughs) goodness. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of danger, I will say that, yes, like if you try to experiment with any of this at home, the paste, the like Play-Doh kind of format, pretty safe. It it might involve drying a piece in an oven, maybe, but even that's going to probably be very low temperature. Um, If you're working with molten sugar, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Molten sugar is edible napalm. All right. Like it will stick to you as it burns you. It is delicious and terrifying. Just, just keep that in mind. Like, don't be, don't be, don't be terrified. Like, unduly, <laughs> it's not coming for you. But you know, but be, but be respectful. Be respectful. Okay, respect the molten sugar. Respect the molten sugar always. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I have to say, a lot of the stuff you've been describing sounds a little dangerous to me. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It, it is. That's because it is. <laughs> Well, perfect. I'm picking up on what you're putting down then. I did. I don't know if you remember, but there's an old character in our D&D campaign named Ananas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was originally going to be the character I was going to play, and then I went super dark instead. But oh, okay, fun, yeah. Yeah, you did. She's a chef, and so she was going to have a bunch of, like... You know, obviously your frying pan weapon, but, uh, you know, how to you mix ingredients and make a bomb or something. Wow. Um, so this is kind of, it's giving me ideas. I'll say no, that. No, no. Not in my real life. No way. Oh, that's that, that, that's good. That's good. But yeah, I mean, I, it's, I mean, you know, again, like, like sugar is like relatively brittle. Um, but, but you could probably have like a very pokey isomalt spear kind of situation. Oh, Wow. That's like the old, you know, the melting icicle yeah. mind trap riddle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> what about the nutrition? Um, of sculptures? Uh, <laughs> I, um, it depends. I, again, these things are varyingly edible. Um, so uh, uh, sugar, sh- sugar isn't really good for you. Um, it's a, eating art is a treat. Eating art is a treat. Oh, okay. <laughs> that feels like one of those things you read and you're like, that's supposed to be really deep and I don't get it. <laughs> and you just ponder it as you're trying to sleep late at night. Yeah, yeah. You're like, mm. is, is it? Is it? This is a very existential episode. You know? 
It is. Well, we do have some numbers for you. We do. We do. Um, some of these sculptures, uh, uh, particularly I was reading about the paste or, or like Play-Doh kind of type. Um, uh, they can be really sturdy and last decades if they're kept carefully. Um, just got to keep them cool and dry. And that's all. Um, uh, historian and artist Ivan Day says that he has kept some for like 30 years and counting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are Guinness records. For uh, tallest sugar sculpture and tallest cooked sugar sculpture made in 11 hours specifically. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, both were achieved in 2006. Food Network was running like a Guinness Records filming event at the Mall of America. Um, all right. So the cooked sugar record uh, achieved was um, 3.91 meters tall. That's 12 feet, 10 inches. It was made to look like the John Hancock building in Chicago. This was a theme. Um, uh, the uncooked statue was 4.97 meters tall. That's like 16 feet, three inches. And it was made to look like the Empire State Building. Um, both artists were French. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, in Mexico, there is an art of sugar sculpting often associated with Dia de los Muertos. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. In some traditions, uh, when you put up uh, uh, your shrine or ofrenda for Day of the Dead, um, some popular decorations that you put on there are molded out of sugar paste and, and then decorated. They're, uh, they're called alfeniques. Um, skulls are a popular type, uh, but there are other lots of other uh, types of figures. Uh, and there is a whole festival uh, or, or fair, I guess you would say, in uh, Toluca, Mexico, every year in the month leading up to Day of the Dead, where like a hundred vendors come out and sell all of their sugar sculptures and like other non-edible figurines. That sounds cool. I bet, listeners, I bet some of you have some pictures of this, so I would love that. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Any, any mm. pictures you have of any sugar sculpture-related thing. Again, uh, Dia de los Muertos is a whole thing. Like, mm -hmm. totally, totally another episode. We're going to touch on it a little bit in the history, though. Yes, yes. But definitely keep those pictures coming. Um, and we've got a ride of a history for you. My heck. <laughs> My heck. Uh, and we are going to get into that as soon as we get back from a quick break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. 
you just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And again, see our sugar episodes or episode. <laughs> the mystery remains. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, some historians believe that sugar art and sugar painting could go back to ancient times, um, perhaps dating back to 4000 BCE in Papua New Guinea. Um, the origin of sugar sculpture, though, is kind of tied up in sugar refinement um, and specifically uh, sugar cane refinement, which was getting underway in a few areas simultaneously um, from uh, the Middle East through what's now India and China from like the 600s through the 1100s CE. And certainly by about the 900 CE, um, really pretty pulled sugar candies or like medicinal lozenges were being made for rich folks. Some of the first sugar sculptures we know of were created in the 11th century in the Middle East by artists who would combine sugar, almonds, and water to make a moldable paste that could be shaped and baked. Um, The well-off would sometimes commission these sculptures for banquets and celebrations or to hand out to the poor on feast days. Marzipan! Yeah. Yes, very similar to marzipan. Um, Over the next few centuries, the practice made its way to Europe. Sugar sculptures popped up in the French court in the 13th century and nearby countries soon after that. Europeans called them subtleties? Mm -hmm. Uh (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. From what I understand, a lot of these early ones were much smaller than some of what we're going to talk about later, but... I I'm I feel like I feel like this was ira- I like feel like this was a joke like that oh oh for sure I mean for that was but I I do think a lot of these early ones were smaller than sure some of the massive ones that we're going to talk about meals at the time weren't necessarily divided up like we sometimes do today like not in the way we w- we might think of it like dessert course wasn't always exactly exactly and sugar had a lot of medicinal beliefs around it, um, including as a digestif. So because of that, the first course might be a sugar sculpture called a warmer. Hmm. Yeah. I found some conflicting information about the history of sugar sculpting in Asia and specifically in China. Um, Some sources implied it went back to 600 CE, if not even further back than that. Yeah, uh, for, for sure. By some time in the 13 to 1600s, a few styles of sugar sculpture were being developed around China, um, perhaps first to create decorative pieces for, for royals or other very rich people for like religious ceremonies. Um, the two main types I read about were sugar painting and sugar blowing. Um, and the blowing is similar to what we've talked about, um, you know, using a small straw to inflate molten sugar as it cools and, and further manipulating it with your with your hands or other tools. Sugar painting um, uses, uses a ladle to drizzle molten sugar in a two-dimensional design. Then you press a, a stick, like a long, thin lollipop-type stick onto it, and then you use a spatula to remove it from the surface, and you have this this thing on a stick. Um, (laughs) A number of like animals and plants and human subjects became traditional. Um, And these were typically made with with maltose, which dries a sort of golden color and was sometimes dyed or painted afterwards. But the real heyday (laughs) of the sugar sculpture in Europe was during the Renaissance. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. At the time, white sugar was a status symbol among wealthy Europeans because it was expensive and viewed as pure due to the color of it. And it was also viewed as exotic because it was imported from the Caribbean and Africa. So this means that this sugar was largely the result of the labor of enslaved peoples. Uh Yep. Um, Since sugar was so rare and so expensive in Europe... Many wanted to artistically display it. During this period, rich folks were hiring confectioners and pastry chefs to experiment with desserts. And a lot of that experimentation involved art and presentation. 
talented chefs knew how to work with white sugar paste and use it to make these elaborate sculptures. Uh, They'd mold this paste, they would shape it, they would paint it sometimes, cast it to harden it, and join any pieces that they wanted to join with gas torches. (laughs) Fancy parties would have these sugar sculptures on display in the middle of the table to wow and impress their guest. Mm-hmm. I read in some places uh, they were called triumphs, um, and they were quite the sight. I know we have some descriptions, but they were quite the sight. Mm-hmm. Um, some reaching several feet tall, some dyed different colors, sometimes gilded with gold leaf. Yeah. Yeah, in in English, they were called subtleties, and in Italian, they were sometimes called uh, triomphi um, or or triumphs. I'm not sure where my accent just went with that. So I, (laughs) yeah, at any rate, triumphs, yes. Yes, and this is one of my favorite things. So at the end of the party, some host would encourage their guest to break off pieces of the sculpture as a sort of memento or a party favor. Mm -hmm. Entire tables would sometimes be filled with sugar figurines of all kinds. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, Some of the most impressive of these sculptures became somewhat famous. (laughs) The sources of art and literature and were quite ambitious in scope. Um, They graced the banquets of popes and the weddings and baptisms of royalty. I even read they were sometimes used as a form of rebuke or revenge Against a guest who was there. Uh, there, I mean, there was a lot of political meaning um, uh, and subtext kind of baked in, pun intended, I guess, uh, <laughs> to, to some of these things. So I wouldn't I would not put it past any kind of Renaissance European royal. <laughs> no, it's so petty. It's so petty. Um, and I, I saw in a couple of places the wedding cake is often referred to as a modern-day subtlety and as a piece of this legacy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, so there are just wild descriptions and depictions of some of these things. Uh, And some of the best known today are because, like, a really good artist happened to attend the banquet and then did a whole series of of illustrations of what was going on on the sugar table. Um, so, for example, uh, there was this banquet in Rome in 1687 to honor Pope Innocent XI. Um, there was an 100-foot-long table bearing, and I quote, a range of historical figures almost half as big as life, made of a kind of sugar paste, but modeled to the utmost skill of a statuary. Um, <laughs> that's a direct quote from someone who was there, uh, from I think the artist who who uh, drew these guys. So, okay, there were like mythological figures in these grand chariots that were being drawn by like peacocks and lions and hippocamps, and, and the chariots had these waves or maybe like feathers or like greenery coming up all around them. There were palm trees and and nymphs representing the virtues. There was a decapitated hydra representing the recently crushed Protestant rebellion in England. What? (laughs) Wow. Yeah, this was like at the base of the whole thing and like the seal of Mm. England was about, it was, it's, oh, it is a sight to behold. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, in Russia in 1672, uh, there was a banquet for uh, Peter the Great's baptism, um, and their sugarscape included, like a lot of birds, this was bird heavy. Um, there were eagles, a duck, a swan, a dove, a 350-pound sugar parrot. Whoa. <laughs> um, there was like a model of the Kremlin that had infantry and cavalry and cannons, some of the pieces were flavored with cinnamon, and some were colored red with a, a cochineal, which were both incredibly expensive imports in their own right at the time. Hoofda. Um, there, there are some that, like, no illustrations exist of, but, like, this one cook for British royalty in the late 1600s sometime wrote about this, this sugar stag, this stag made of sugar that had an arrow in its flank and when you took the arrow out it would bleed wine oh my (laughs) once again very metal yeah i'm like (laughs) 
where was my sugar statuary in Game of Thrones? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's write him a letter. <laughs> we, had, we had some really good food in there, food depictions in there. Anytime I saw, I see a pineapple anywhere in a movie, I'm really excited. Anyway. Um, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. Well. Missed opportunity. That's what we'll say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay, but as the supply of sugar increased and the price decreased, it became more readily available and less of a status symbol in the mid-18th century, um, which kind of funnily was like, well, then we're not doing this anymore. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This shift is evident in recipes from the time, indicating sugar was accessible by the middle class. Um, So therefore, yeah, the appeal of the sugar sculpture faded away in Europe. Yeah, or like at least at least changed, right? Because like the the grand banquets described above were shows of power by by royalty or other like heads of state. Um, but by around the same time that those were going on, uh, like like normal rich people, not extravagantly rich people, uh, might have had someone make a sugar sculpture for a party, like mostly because it was pretty. Um, not because they wanted to have a hydra representing Protestantism being defeated. Um, uh, and yeah, by, by the middle of the 1700s, uh, like you just said, it was something that like any old anyone with a kitchen staff might have for a special occasion. Um, mm-hmm. It never did fade entirely away as like a higher art form. For example, uh, Antonin Carême uh, did a bunch of sugar sculpture around the like late 17 to early 1800s. Lots of architectural pieces depicting like classical styles from around the world, uh, Greek temples and Chinese pagodas and Middle Eastern pavilions, all surrounded by really beautiful landscaping with like rivers and rocks and trees and stuff. <laughs> um, meanwhile, uh, the Spanish brought molded sugar paste techniques and traditions over to the Americas during colonization. Um, And that, alongside some native edible sculpture traditions, eventually developed into those Day of the Dead Elfenique traditions around Mexico. Uh, Later on, as technology advanced across like the 18 and 1900s, um, sculpted sugar in the form of like pulled hard candy uh, drops and ribbons and and sticks or or, like candy canes um, all became increasingly cheap and commonplace. And I could not for the life of me find good information on like where and when cooked sugar sculpture really began or took off in Europe and the Americas. Um, But I suspect it had to have been after the invention of, like, more precise thermometers and heating elements that was, like, right around this time. Yeah. That would make sense. Um, That would make sense. All right. So in 2014, artist Kara Walker installed a sugar sculpture of a sphinx at the Domino Sugar Factory in New York. And this is, like, a lot of the, the results I was getting. When I was searching this. Yeah, first. yeah, because because sugar sculpture is still alive and well today. Several artists work in it um, around yes. the world. But this was a very landmark piece. It was. Um, she drew a lot of inspiration from these Renaissance sugar sculptures. She told The Guardian, quote, I was reading this book, Sweetness and Power, by anthropologist Sidney Mintz, and I came across these sugar sculptures called subtleties that they had at medieval banquets. Up until that point, I had been thinking of finger-wagging, doom-laden things about the history of slavery and sugar and America. I didn't take into account what people wanted to look at. And then I wanted to include uh, kind of the title of the piece. Mm -hmm. At the behest of creative time, Cara E. Walker has confected a subtlety are the marvelous sugar baby, an homage to the unpaid and overworked artisans who have refined our sweet taste from the cane fields to the kitchens of the new world on the occasion of the demolition of the Domino Sugar Refining Plant. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, okay. She built... Uh, she, she she built it in this this abandoned sugar warehouse um, from the Domino Company in New York City. And... um, the the piece is this 
gigantic sphinx. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it depicts a black woman seated in the style of the sphinx, and she has these exaggerated hips and breasts, and she's wearing a kerchief tied around her hair. It is, it's, it, it's a mammy figure, um, and it is beautiful and terrible, um, and it is judging the absolute hell out of you. Um, and it is rendered in pure white cane sugar. Yes. And it, it's stunning. Um, it was 35 feet by 75 feet. Uh-huh. Walker used nearly four tons of sugar donated by Domino to create this work. It's not, um, it's not actually solid sugar, but, um, sugar coated polystyrene. She, um, she also created to, 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 to go along with it um, in within the warehouse, uh, 15 life-sized molasses-colored candy children. Um, they're, they're little black boys carrying baskets um, modeled after vintage racist figurines um, that depicted enslaved people as, you know, being like happy to be working, the whole Song of the South, zippity-doo-dah kind of, kind of noise. Um, and she, she designed them so that the candy that she used would melt slowly in this like non-climate controlled exhibit space. Um, NPR reported that it looked a lot like blood. Yeah, I highly recommend we're not an art podcast, but I highly recommend uh, looking up kind of all of the things that is going on. Yeah. In these pieces. (laughs) Yeah, they're very stunning. They're very upsetting. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I very much recommend, um, taking a look at them. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, also in 2014, a U.S. state dinner for the French president at the time involved sugar sculpting complete with 1800 hand pulled petals. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I looked this up because I, the, the stark differences between Walker's piece and and this news item were really amazing. I was like, I need to see photographic evidence to see what was going on here. Um, so, yeah, OK. Um, I've only seen one photo, but I am surmising that what happened is that the pastry chef, uh, Bill Yozis, uh, gosh, I didn't look up how to say his name, um, that, that he did multiple similar pieces to perhaps go out to like each table or each place setting. Um, uh, and so he, he made this cast sugar plate. To look like marble, um, like white with swirls of orange and gold running through it. Um, and it was the serving platter for Petite Four, for like small cookies and chocolates. Um, and the plate was further decorated with a big red rose um, with the sugar pulled to look like uh, to look like glass. And then a smaller um, deep purple uh, violet or lily maybe with these really delicate ruffled petals. So... It's pretty. It's very pretty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the Getty Museum had an exhibit about sugar sculpting in 2015. Um, it involved a nine-foot-long depiction of a Greek temple, um, complete with, like, statuary and a garden, um, and figurines depicting Circe uh, turning Odysseus's men into pigs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was apparently based on plans for a piece from the 1700s. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and one last note on on Chinese sugar painting um, uh, or, or sugar painting and blowing. They, they eventually became popular for creating like special occasion gifts and then eventually became folk art. And um, I think I think mostly the painting type has survived today as like an entertainment and, and treat especially for kids at like cool weather festivals in some regions um uh for 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 blowing figurines for sale the artists now have the kids do the blowing um for like sanitary purposes also how cool is that like you get to watch an artist make this really cool weird thing and then they're like okay you have to finish it by blowing into this tiny straw that is so cool, really cool. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Agreed. (laughs) Um, And if you can't get out to see one of those, then um, I've seen a bunch of flyers, actually. Like, like while I was doing all of this reading, I saw a bunch of flyers for, um, like, art and or science workshops about sugar sculpture um, around the United States and elsewhere. So, yeah, so do do, do some Googling if that kind of thing would interest you. 
Absolutely. And then report back. Oh, my gosh. Yes. 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 We need you. (laughs) We need you. (laughs) Very important. Yeah. It is. Extremely. But I think that's what we have to say about sugar sculptures for now. Oh, I think it is. Um, uh, We do already have some listener mail for you, though, and we are going to get into that as soon as we get back from one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. back thank you sponsor yes thank you and we're back with (laughs) you know kind of blowing spinning i don't know (laughs) (laughs) annie is here after a very long day already y'all so It's true. It's true. Oh, but I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. Thrilled. And you're doing great. You're doing great. Thank you, Lauren. So are you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay. Yes. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, so Vivian wrote, on marigolds, my first exposure to the practical uses of marigolds was way back in elementary school when the MMORPG, or Massively Multiplayer Online Role-Playing Game, RuneScape, was still in vogue. Marigolds are the lowest level flower that a player can plant Hmm. with a farming skill. If you plant marigolds adjacent to a plot of land where you've grown potatoes, onions, or tomatoes, your crops will be protected from disease. Many years later, I decided to finally look up if this has basis in reality. Hmm. Apparently, marigolds have indeed been used for generations to repel insects. Wiki says they... Quote, often used in companion planting for tomato, eggplant, chili pepper, tobacco, and potato. One website claims that, quote, they have a distinctive smell that repels mosquitoes and other garden pests, including squash bugs and tomato worms. Marigolds contain a natural compound used in many insect repellents. However, 
Recent research, summarized here, has apparently shown that those claims are overblown. But one specific type of marigold has been shown, it seems, to control proliferation of the parasitic root knot nematode by secreting alpha terthneal, uh, sure, hope I didn't butcher it, uh, from its roots, which inhibits nematode egg hatching. And this nematode is known to attack a number of plants, including the tomato. Props to the game developers. <laughs> um, on Star Wars, it's fascinating to me how generational the Star Wars fandom is. When I first got into Star Wars in middle school, this is around the time the Clone Wars TV series was coming out, all the adults were bashing on the prequels, mm. and I felt quite alone in my love for the prequels. As my generation of fans grew up and spread to all corners of the internet, we all realized that there were many other fans who grew up with the prequels and loved them. Hmm. Then the sequels came out and they were bashed by many in my generation. <laughs> and I admittedly find much of it difficult to stomach myself. Beautiful cinematography, great acting, terrible script. But the sequels seem to be plenty popular with the new generation of fans. <laughs> I guess there's just a trilogy for every generation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, Wes. Um, mm -hmm. Well, first off, I love that you bought a video game fact about marigolds and about kind of their scientific properties. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, thank you. I didn't you. even consider that. <laughs> What's wrong with me? <laughs> terrible, 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 terrible. Um, and yes, I completely agree with you about, about Star Wars. I grew up with the prequels as well. And I won this sweet backpack, Lauren. It was oh, so yeah? cool. And then I was so embarrassed to have it, I got rid of it. Um, oh, no. And now I'm like Aww. kicking myself for it because that backpack was cool. And I love backpacks. I'm pointing, but you can't see. There's like yeah. six backpacks in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean. <laughs> it's it's funny to me because it's true. I, it makes sense. We're all nostalgic. I did grow up with the original trilogy too, but um, it, it we are all nostalgic. But I also think it's important to keep in mind that, you know. It's important for kids. Like when I see people yeah. dressed as Ray, it makes me so happy. Oh it's my like heck, so thing. happy, right? <laughs> oh man, yes. whenever whenever a kid is excited about something, come on, like that's great. That's like, or whenever yeah. anyone is excited about something, I think that's pretty great. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, g getting the experience of going to to Disney and seeing tiny children be just yes. as excited about seeing, you know, like yes, Padme or whatever as I am, I'm just like, yeah, we're sharing this together. Absolutely. I um, love it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hated I hated the um, prequels when they came out. I was I was in high school and I was too cool for them. Um, <laughs> but, uh, right. But but no, I it's they're fine. It's fine. It's fine to like things. It is. It is. And I, I think it's just important to remember, like, you know, for the, the people of the prequels, like you say, Vivian, you don't hate on the sequels because you remember what it was like. Oh, yeah. You can have critiques. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Oh, my but, goodness. Yes. But not being like, <laughs> mm -hmm. you're you're ridiculous for liking this right. and I dismiss you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> oh, uh, Tracy wrote, on a recent trip to Italy, I had the amazing fortune to spend time in Florence, the capital of Tuscany, and we went a little Cantucci wild. Our first encounter was during a lunch. The lady next to us was visiting from another part of Italy and asked for a regional dessert, and we saw her brought a tray of biscotti um, and a shot glass filled with a, a golden syrup to dunk. Later that day, we were at a wine bar, um, an enoteca, and I said that in a really Spanish way anyway, um, and asked for coffee to go with our dessert. Our waitress apologized, saying they only served wine. She returned a few minutes later with two aperitif glasses filled with the same golden syrup we'd seen earlier that day. Um, she explained it was Vinsanto, a saintly wine, and that in Florence, we had to try it. But she didn't serve any cookies. The next day, we went to the uh, big central market where I saw several Cantucci vendors. I then remembered that's what these cookies were called in Italian. So that evening, after enjoying a giant uh, bistecca al Florentina, we asked for Vinsanto and Cantucci to finish the meal. My partner was skeptical, but took one bite and his mind was blown. 
He then ordered it after every meal we ate for the rest of our time in Florence. This impressed our waiter at one lunch spot we found, and as we were finishing our dessert, he brought us a second plate of cookies. Um, he explained that when they're fresh from the oven, they're more chewy, and which he preferred, and he thought that we should try both versions. Vinsanto and Cantucci became our symbol of Florence, um, not just as a delicious treat, but as a reminder of the amazing hospitality we had there. We recently celebrated our anniversary at uh, Monteverde, uh, an Italian-inspired restaurant in Chicago. And for dessert, we asked for Vinsanto and biscotti. Uh, for a few small bites, it was like being back in Italy. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> oh, all of that is lovely. Oh, all of that sounds so good. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes. Always jealous of these trips you listeners take and the food you try, but so... Right. So grateful that you share it with us. Yes, thank you. Yes, we really appreciate it. And gosh, this sounds like a lovely trip. It does. <laughs> it oh, really does. It does. Oh. And I do love the passion of like a chef being like, you need to try. Be like, hold on. Both. Hold on. Hold yeah. on. Wait yeah. That's... <laughs> love it. <laughs> oh, well. Thanks to both of these listeners for writing in. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We are also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at saverpod, and we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.